You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome everyone to Teller from Jerusalem, and today a very exciting episode because we've invited former Ambassador Daniel Taub, who was the Israeli ambassador to England, extraordinarily beloved and respected ambassador to England. Prior to that, he was a very long-term uh, senior employee of the Foreign Ministry of Israel, and he was the one that hammered out the arrangements and international agreements that Israel was involved in. It's an honor. Needless to say, he is an encyclopedic individual, uh, a very brilliant sense of humor, it's such a pleasure to happen, and I, I must mention as well, a very dear friend of mine for so many, many, many years. So, Sir Daniel, please, uh, our subject we're starting off with, and I'm going to try and twist his arm very gently to get him to be on more than just one episode. Uh, we'll see if we can take advantage, or in Daniel's case, advantage. Uh, we're going to start talking about the Balfour Declaration, and uh, like everything, the former ambassador is an expert in this, and uh, let's hear what you have to say about the considerations in issuing the declaration. Um, thank you, Hanach. It is such a pleasure to be here. Um, so many years of, of, of close friendship. And not only that, you've been such a teacher and a mentor and an advisor to me in so many ways. It's a real pleasure to be here on your podcast. Um, and the Balfour Declaration, of course, was a really critical change in, in British foreign policy. It wasn't a binding document, but it was a statement of, um, of moral commitment by the British government in 1917 during the First World War, where they, ex they um, expressed their support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, what was then called Palestine. It wasn't an agreement. It was actually took the form of a letter that was signed by Arthur Balfour, who was the Foreign Secretary at the time, to, um, to Walter Rothschild, who maybe we'll talk about, a really curious, interesting character. But he was the head of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Uh, pardon my English or my British. Mm -hmm. His Majesty's government looks with favor upon the... <laughs> looks with favor means a, a binding or not binding? No, it's, it wasn't a binding, but mm -hmm. it was a statement of, of policy considerations that would guide. And afterwards, we knew, we know, looking back, that, that Britain at the time actually was making not entirely consistent promises regarding the future of the area of Palestine or the Middle East to different parties, different people. No, in the I government. think it was pretty clear, just Winston Churchill went back on that. And I, I'm not even talking about what happened later on with the no. White Paper. I'm just talking about different agreements about how to carve up. But to your question, what were the considerations behind the Balfour Declaration, which is a really positive, extraordinary statement of support for the for the Zionist movement. I think a lot of people, historians, when they look back today, they look for the, the realpolitik reasons. They think about Britain, and rightly so, they think about Britain seeing, looking ahead to the end of the First World War and thinking about what its interests were going to be. How are we going to make sure that we still have a foothold in Palestine, we still protect our access to the Suez Canal, and so on. They were far be it for me to interrupt. <laughs> I guess it's not so far so for me. Far, so far. <laughs> uh, I think you don't have to look after the war, but I think even during the war, Britain had a lot of considerations, such as uh, there was the thought that American Jewry was a very big player in America, controlled the radio, the press, Hollywood. Some even thought that the genuine name of the president of the United States was Franklin Delano Rosenfeld. <laughs> so 
to try and get America to enter World War I, which is desperate, they thought if they could get the Zionists do this favor, that could be useful. So I think, I, I think that's, that's absolutely true regarding the British considerations, both with regard to American Jewry and regard to Russia. They were also right. interested in getting Russia to support their war aims, and they thought if we can do this with these two significant Jewish communities, I think where they may have made a mistake is assuming that these Jewish communities were going to be very supportive of the Zionist project. At also, the time. it's quite a leap to think that American Jewry, which was so much made up of Soviet Jewry, mm. or Russian Jewry, whatever it was called then, mm. they had such animosity towards the Tsar. Why in the world did they want to do anything that would be beneficial for Russia? So I think one of the strokes of genius of Chaim Weizmann and the Zionists in Britain was that they managed to persuade uh, the British government, this is what the Jews of the world are waiting for. This is the thing that's really going to, to, to get them on side and help them persuade the leadership. In fact, if we think about where, where world Jewry was on the issue of the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, um, Many of them, perhaps even the majority, were not really on side with the project. And that was certainly true in Britain. In Britain, just to give you a flavor, not long before the Balfour Declaration, a group of the leading Jewish families in Britain took out an advert in one of the major Would papers that be there. And I'll, I'll, I'll say a word about Montague. I don't know if he was signed onto this, where they argued against the idea of setting up Zionists societies for universities and so on for students because they said that this will encourage the British people to question the level of our patriotism how close we are to British society and this was an issue that that basically split families you had you know I, I spent some time working for the Rothschilds Foundation so I had an opportunity to to look into their archives and it was really interesting to see how the family was actually split over the question of the Balfour Declaration on the one hand, we had Walter, who was the, the person who was a Zionist and received the Balfour Declaration. But he had a cousin, another branch of the family, and his offices were the headquarters of what were called the, the League of British Jews. And they were the primary opponents of the, of the Balfour Declaration. And, and so it split families. It actually split the war cabinet. In the war cabinet, the British war cabinet that was deciding on the issue at the time, there were two Jews who, in fact, happened to be cousins, cousins right. uh, second cousins, I think. One of them was Herbert Samuel, who, who you may have spoken about in, in, in some of your right. other podcasts. Who was the he first. was named after the street in Jerusalem. <laughs> he was named after the hotel on the street in Jerusalem. <laughs> he was, uh, he was a, um, a very passionate Zionist. In fact, in one of his meetings with, with Chaim Weizmann, he said he wasn't being Zionist enough and so on. Mm -hmm. And he wrote the memorandum that was effectively the basis for the cabinet to adopt the position of the Balfour Declaration, and later he became the High Commissioner in Palestine. Um, the first Jew to be in charge of Palestine, he was always like to say, since biblical times or whatever, and so on. Yeah, I mean, uh, all that is fine, and I, he's a fine person, mm -hmm. but he made such a terrible error that mm -hmm. his record will always be sullied by virtue of the fact he appointed Khajam al Husseini as the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. So we have the benefit of 2020 hindsight, and at this stage I'm talking about the role that he played in the Balfour Declaration, mm -hmm. where I think he has to be held up as an example, at least in contrast with his cousin, Edwin Montague. Edwin Montague was a very 
proud but assimilated Jew, and he thought that this was an absolute disaster. It will a, question everyone's dual loyalty to... Yeah, to I think for a moment we need to understand why the British Jews were so opposed, and we need to give them a little bit of credit, even if we don't agree with them. We're talking about a period of time when there was a real massive immigration of Jews into the United Kingdom. The thing about Jews, they are a migrating people, it seems, anyway. The Jewish people of Eastern Europe, this was a civilization that existed for a thousand years in Eastern Europe and Russia continually in a state of tremendous cultural dynamism. And in this period of time, it did not build a Taj Mahal. It did not build a Tower of London. It was a culture entirely in the heads of the people. 1881 ushered in the era of pogroms and Cossacks coming through towns and slaughtering people. Many people who had their antenna out were understanding that the civilization of the Jews of Europe is coming to an end and it will be a violent and a horrible end. And if you can get out, get out. Primarily after pogroms and massacres in Eastern Europe. You know, between the late 1890s and the early 1900s, the number of Jews in the United Kingdom went up from about 60,000 to 300,000. And so they, as leaders of the community, thought that their primary goal their, their main responsibility was to make sure that these new immigrants were fully integrated, had an opportunity to find their feet and jobs and so on. And they feared that saying that this is not really their country, there is another country that is really their country, uh, would encourage Britain to send them somewhere else or not support them and so on. So that was really their consideration. So Edwin Montague fought as... I'm, I'm sorry, you're talking about British Jewry. Yes. Whereas... Balfour himself was the author of the Alien Act. So I'll say a word about Balfour. So it's interesting. If we think about the, the non-Jews, I mentioned some of the real politic considerations, but alongside that, there was a genuine idealism. Not just Balfour, Lloyd George, who, who started off as the Minister of Munitions and then was the Prime Minister at the time. He was a Fabrenta Zionist. He said, I, I grew up knowing the names of the towns and villages in Palestine as well as I knew the ones of the villages in my native Wales. You know, these are people who'd grown up reading, reading the novels of George Eliot, for example. She wrote this book called Daniel Durunda, which is one of the most Zionist books you could imagine. It tells the story of an assimilated Jew who rediscovers his heritage through a, 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 a Jewish family who are arguing for Zionism. And some of the speeches in that, that book could have been sponsored by the Jewish agency or the, you know, the, the Sochnot. Um, and, and poet Robert Browning, Robert Young, wrote poems about the scattered band returning to its native land. And, and, and so there really was a... Part of it was a Christian ideological feeling, and part of it was just a sense of of historic justice, um, how important it was for these people to actually come, come back. I think at one point uh, Lloyd George also said that because he came from Wales, he was aware of the fact how a small little country has such significant, can have such great significance. First of all, there are some similarities between Wales and some Welsh people in the, and in Israel. I have to say that when I, was, when I was posted to the United Kingdom, I was responsible for Wales as well. So I went to visit Wales a couple of times. I discovered something interesting. There is a word that every Welsh person knows that it's Hebrew, but they don't know that it's Hebrew. 
And that word is all pun. Because every Welsh child has to learn the Welsh language, and the method that they use to teach it is the old pun method of, using, of teaching language. So <laughs> Israel is actually helping Welsh children learn, learn the Welsh language. Um, so, so there genuinely was um, an idealistic, almost dreamlike quality of wanting to see the Jews. There was a, a movement that was called the Restorationist Movement, which was a British movement. The founder, actually, was a fellow called Henri Dunant, who was the founder of the Red Cross, the International Red Cross. Now, the International Red Cross, since then, has not always been the most mm. positive organization or sympathetic organization to Israel, and I've had an... Or to Jews. Or, to, or, or, or possibly to, or to Jews as well, if we go back into history. So I've had the opportunity to represent Israel at conferences of the Red Cross, where they criticize Israel for its settlements or for its whatever, and I always make a point of paying tribute to the founder of the Red Cross, who was such a supporter of the idea of bringing the Jews back to their historic land, and they never really know what to do with that. Um, so, so there was a lot of idealism on the part of, of the, the British leadership, along with the realpolitik that we talked about. But amongst the Jews, as we said, there, there was a real split. There was the, the, the established community, that was very sceptical, that was very worried that this is something that's going to raise spectres of dual loyalty. And in the cabinet, as I said, that was Edwin Montague. Even after he was no longer in the cabinet and he was on his way to take up his position of being Viceroy of India and he heard that the Balfour Declaration was coming up for a vote, he wrote to, to Balfour and he says, do you realise if you pass this vote, you are basically saying that my family that has fought in the army, that has studied in this country and so on. This is not really our country, that we should be going off to somewhere else. And then he said, I can't imagine any Jews tending olive trees and herding sheep. The idea seemed, seemed to him so ridiculous, so mm. beyond. And, and the only thing that makes that sort of a little bit sad and ironic about that time, um, I came across a letter about him that was written by a different diplomat in the Foreign Service, a very British diplomat, and he said that the idea that Edwin Montague thinks that he is English is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> he says he's, he's every inch an Oriental, is the way that he described him. So here he is trying as hard as he can to be an assimilated Jew, and yet all of the people are around him. Uh, but there was this, I, I can't say consensus, there was a fear, there was a sense among British Jewry, or certainly from the politicians, that they should not be supportive of the Balfour Declaration, and Rav Cook was present in England at the time, and he made it his business to make it clear that Judaism and Jewish law uh, uh, make... So that's interesting. I, I haven't read about Rav Cook's response, you know, activity in relation to this. There were a number of people, including religious people, who were involved in it. One of the drafters of the, um, of the, of the, of the early drafts of the Declaration was Herbert Bentwich who was um, a lawyer in England, a religious lawyer. He lived, actually the house that I lived in when I was ambassador in London was his house where he raised his 11 children before they moved to Israel. Um, there were others. There was the, um, the, the Sephardi rabbi, uh, chief rabbi of, of London, um, Gasser, I think his name was, who was also very active in the drafting and support for the, for, for the declaration. So I, but I hadn't heard, I have to say, about the, the oh, as a matter of fact, of Cook, when when it was declared, it was, I guess it was done in the morning. Mm -hmm. He sent people out from prayers to go buy carbohydrates and wine, and they made a celebration. So there were enormous celebrations. Um, so um, I was reading a um, a biography 
an autobiography by Isaiah Berlin, who was a child of nine. He was in Riga at the time that the Balfour Declaration came out. And he described how they were all given flags. It was basically a, a Simchat Torah that they celebrated, you know, when the Balfour Declaration came out. And to the best of my knowledge, there was a special song that was written for the occasion. What song uh, is it, that? It, 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 the, the, um, the, the song that will be actually be very familiar to many of your listeners. The tune was an existing tune. It was a Hasidic tune. But there were very special, joyful words that were written for them. And I won't tell you what they are, but I'll allow you to, to find the song and, mm -hmm. uh, and your listeners can enjoy it. Okay, that's a fair deal. Uh, by the way, uh, Usishkin, who was an important Zionist, he was in Odessa when the Balfour Declaration was declared. He, his car was followed by 200,000 people. That's amazing. Yeah, the people, the non-Jews could not believe their eyes. We're talking about a quarter million people going after a car. So, and, and we should say, obviously, here in, in pre-state Israel as well. Um, so about four or five years ago, there was a, um, uh, we marked 100 years of the Balfour Declaration. Um, a little bit more actually, and um, and there were a number of exhibits, including the National Library of Israel, put um, put on a wonderful exhibit, and they had they brought out the recipes for special cakes that were being baked by bakeries and the special you know programs of concerts that were all marking this extraordinary celebration. Having said this about Balfour Declaration, which uh, was the beginning uh, worldwide, in other words. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Chancellor of Germany said England dropped, printed millions of brochures about the Balfour Declaration. They airdropped it all over Europe. And the Kaiser said, we've lost again. Meaning the British were so successful with this, pub, this public relations stunt. So, so um, that's, that's very interesting. I hadn't heard that. I think there is well, maybe another point that's worth picking up on if we look back on the Balfour Declaration. First of all, it's one of those things that... It, it wasn't something that was destined to happen. It was really a group of individuals that, in a sense, fighting the odds, made it to happen. And some of them are really extraordinary, unusual individuals. Well, you did mention Weizmann, but Weizmann was also in a very good position at that point because uh, the minister of, you'll help me with the correct term, uh, not munitions. Yeah, uh, it, is, it was the minister of munitions. First of all, there is something interesting there. Weizmann, of course, was a chemistry professor, professor in the University of Manchester. And he had devised a method of artificial getting, acetone. getting acetone, actually from chestnuts. chestnuts they, they sent kids into the forest to get the chestnuts to use his method. And that, that really And they brewed them very, in the, all the pubs throughout England. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and, they, um, um, and that meant that there was a genuine sense of British gratitude to Weizmann for supporting Legitimately, the war effort. I mean. and, and that gave him a standing. In fact, uh, Lloyd George at one stage who afterwards became prime minister said, you know, it was acetone that converted me to Zionism. But alongside Weizmann, <laughs> there were these Bit other... So, so, so Walter Rothschild, for example, you know, he was a Zionist, but his real love in life was actually zoology. He was a passionate collector of animals. He started a, a museum of stuffed animals and so on. If you've seen photos of him, 
You'll have seen him riding a carriage pulled by zebras through Hyde Park or riding a giant tortoise and so on. And in fact, you know, although he was the head of the Board of Deputies, his real passion was animals. And, and one of the few letters that we have of his to Chaim Weizmann is actually not asking about the Zionist project, but asking what happened to two ostriches that he actually sent to Israel and so on. So he was <laughs> a very, very unusual character. And the other thing that maybe is an important message for some of your listeners, um, that age is no barrier to, to playing a role. One of the people that played quite an important role was actually an 18-year-old girl. Her name was Dorothy de Rothschild. She was the wife of Baron Edmund Rothschild's son, James. And Baron was away and James was injured in the war in France and was recuperating. So when Chaim Weizmann wanted help navigating the British aristocracy and knowing how to present his case, it was basically an 18-year-old girl who was who was helping him, advising him, preparing him for his speeches and so on. I and love these unknown characters in history, that uh, unknown, unsung heroes that have such a monumental so role. So she really is an unsung hero in that sense. Afterwards, she became famous because she and James donated the money to build the, the Knesset, the Supreme Court, and now Israel's National Library. But in those days, she was really just starting out on her journey in Zionism. One second, the National Library, which is being constructed today. That's correct. That's still money from her, that's from the foundation. That is the foundation that she and her husband, you know, continued established, and that is the continuation of Rothschild family philanthropy in Israel. Wonderful. Okay, I'm afraid, to my great chagrin, we're going to have to call an end to this episode, and uh, I want to encourage the listeners, please keep on tuning and uh, tuning in to us, and uh, I'm going to make every effort possible to bring back Ambassador Taub for future episodes. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.